Hey, I'm Clifford. I'll be doing the first part of the Bible reading today. So we'll be taking it from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, to chapter 5, verse 20. Um, feel free to follow along in the Bibles or on the handout. So just before this, we have seen um, Jesus speaking to um, the crowds. So Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke in and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people, and tell them how much the Lord has loved you, has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, and began to tell in the, de- in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Hi, I'm Michelle, and I'll be continuing on from where Cliff was reading. So we're starting back at, um, was it 5.21? So, 
When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against us, against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, good afternoon. Those of you who don't know me, my name's Tom. I'm one of the staff workers here with the Christian Union. You will have noticed we have a very large piece of text in front of us. So I'd like to say it's good for you as you read the Bible yourself on some occasions to read small. Take a small piece of the Bible and pay careful attention to all the detail. But on other occasions, it's good to take a larger amount and get the bird's eye view. See how pieces fit together. So today we're reading big. It means we will miss lots of detail but we will get to see some things that you would not see if all we did was look at small parts in isolation. Well, I want to begin by getting you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine you have superpowers. Okay, not just one superpower, every superpower. And all the TV cameras gather around you and you are about to demonstrate to the world how powerful you are. 
What are you going to do? How would you demonstrate it? What great miracle or baffling deed could you dream up to demonstrate your power? Let me give you one suggestion. This is what I thought of. I thought shooting lasers from your eyes like Superman, but not pathetic, piddly little lasers like Superman has. I'm talking like a blast from the Death Star. And I'd blow up the moon into billions of pieces. <laughs> I'm going to get to that. And then you control all those little pieces, all those fragments, and you swirl them around in the sky for a bit, and then you put them all back together. And so the moon is as good as new. Then the icing on the cake. You flip the moon around 180 degrees to reveal your face staring down at the world. And the whole world is going to say, wow, this guy's good. If you actually saw somebody do that, I mean, obviously you would be amazed at how powerful they are. But you would then have to ask the question, what comes next? What else is this person going to do with these incredible powers that they have? Will they use their powers to solve world hunger? To create world peace? Or will they become the next tyrant? But a tyrant with unspeakable powers that we should be terrified of. See, the way that you use your power will say something about your character. It will say something about the way you are likely to use your power in the future. And so if you see somebody blow up the moon and put it back together with their face on it, well, that suggests they like a power trip. They're quite willing to create mass destruction on a huge scale in order to look good and impressive. And if they put their own face on the moon, it suggests, well, megalomaniac, self-obsessed, self-glorifying. If that was the miracle that Jesus performed, we should be terrified. But as we come to Mark chapters 4 and 5, we see Jesus does a number of different miracles, displays of great power. But what do these miracles tell us about the character of Jesus? What do they tell us about how he might act in the future? So these miracles that we're going to look at today, they demonstrate that Jesus has power and authority in particular areas. And they also demonstrate the agenda of Jesus. What is he going to do with that power and authority in the future? And so today we're looking at four miracles... And each one is designed to demonstrate that with the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived and the king is reversing the fall. So let's think back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapters 1 to 3. When God first created people, he gave a command. There is a particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they are, you must not eat from that tree. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed. They decided, we know better than God. I'm going to live my life my way. I will decide what's best. And so they expressed their rebellion by taking of the fruit and eating it. 
At that point, humanity has rebelled against God, and we refer to that rebellion as the fall. That's the time where humanity fell from God's favour, where the world fell into disaster. And as a result of that fall, there are four consequences. There may be others, but I want to point out four particular consequences. Consequence number one, the creation itself, the natural environment, has been thrown into chaos. Instead of living in an orderly, safe garden, like the Garden of Eden, we now live in a world where natural disasters in nature is a threat to us. Consequence number two, forces of spiritual evil have now begun to rule over the world. There's another part of the Bible that describes the devil as the god of this world. Humanity has become enslaved to sin and to the devil. We saw earlier in Mark's Gospel, back in chapter 3, the devil was described as a strong man who has taken humanity captive, bound up in his house. Consequence number three. Our sin against God has made us unclean in God's sight. As a result of that, we are excluded from the presence of God. And consequence number four is death. God had clearly said, if you eat from this tree, you will die. They ate from that tree. And now every person ever since has the sentence of death hanging over them. And so now as we come to these four great miracles that Jesus performs, we see that Jesus is reversing the four effects of the fall. We see Jesus has a mission. He has the power, he has the authority to accomplish that mission. And we get a glimpse as to what the world will look like when his mission is completed. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. And the king is reversing the fall. So we'll now look at each of the four miracles in turn. We'll begin with uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, where Jesus calms the storm. Jesus and his disciples, they hop in the boat to go across the lake. But they are caught in a huge storm. This is a hurricane force kind of storm. The disciples are terrified. They believe they are about to die. And they wake Jesus up because he's fast asleep in the back of the boat. When Jesus wakes up, he does not much. He just speaks two words. Quiet. Still. And then in an instant, the mega storm becomes a mega calm. The disciples are so shocked that they are more terrified afterwards than they were before. And this account concludes with the disciples asking a question. Who is this? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? There is another story in the Old Testament that sounds remarkably similar to this. Can you think of a story where there's 
People in a boat out at sea, huge storm, they think they're going to die. The main character is asleep in the boat. They wake him up and then the storm is instantly stilled. It's the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament. But there is a difference in the book of Jonah. The storm is stilled when Jonah is thrown to his death in the raging waters. It is God who stills the storm. There is another passage in the Old Testament you are probably less familiar with. That is Psalm 107. You might like to note that down and look it up later. Psalm 107 has a section that describes people going out in boats, caught in a huge storm, big waves that are going to drown them. They cry out to the Lord in their distress, and the Lord stills the storm to a whisper. You see, in both Jonah and in Psalm 107, it is God who stills the storm. But now in Mark chapter 4, Jesus has just done what only God can do. And so it's no wonder the disciples ask, who is this? that the wind and the waves obey him. This miracle of Jesus, it shows us that Jesus has the power and authority that God has over the forces of nature. But it also tells us something about the agenda of Jesus, what he will do. When Jesus comes back again, when his kingdom is brought to completion... He will subdue the chaos of creation and bring things into order. He will recreate the heavens and the earth. We will then get to live in a world where the chaos of nature will never be a threat to us ever again. See, this story, it is not about Jesus calming the storms in your life. It's not about you. It's about the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing to transform the world. Jesus has power and authority over nature. He is reversing the fall, and when his kingdom comes, he will bring the chaos of nature to an end. Let's turn now to miracle number two, where Jesus conquers the forces of spiritual evil. This passage begins chapter 5 and verse 1. Jesus and the disciples reach the other side of the lake, And immediately when they get out of the boat, they are confronted by this terrifying man. A man, we are told, is possessed by a legion of unclean spirits. Now, a legion in the Roman army was a force of 6,000 soldiers. That's a terrifying force. Many people have tried to subdue this man in the past, tied him up, bound him with chains, but he just rips the chains to pieces. Anyone who comes across this man would be terrified and fearful for their own well-being, but not Jesus. When Jesus meets this man, he's not afraid for himself. Instead, he has compassion upon the man. How awful it must have been for him to be oppressed by evil spirits for all of this time. We also see it is the evil spirits who are terrified of Jesus. They come to Jesus, fall at his feet and beg him, please do not torture us. Do not send us away from here. So Jesus gives them permission to enter into a herd of pigs. 
that is nearby. So the unclean spirits go into the pigs, but then the pigs rush down a steep bank and are drowned in the lake. Now, this story raises some questions for me, which unfortunately the passage does not answer. Was it the spirits who drove the pigs into the lake? Or did Jesus do that? And what happens to the spirits after the pigs were drowned? Like, where, where do they go? I don't know. We're not told. But what we do know is that Jesus has the power and authority to conquer those forces of spiritual evil. When Jesus returns, when his kingdom comes, all forces of spiritual evil will be thrown into hell and they will never torment us or cause us any trouble ever again. Jesus has power and authority over forces of spiritual evil and he is reversing the fall. When his kingdom comes, spiritual evil will be brought to an end. Let's come now to miracle number three. We're going to skip down now to chapter 5 and verse 24. And we'll see the story where Jesus makes a bleeding woman to be clean. In this account, Jesus and a big crowd around him, they're all kind of squished together as they walk down the road. And we meet this woman, this woman in absolute desperate, desperate need. She pushes through the crowd hoping only to touch Jesus' cloak, and then she will be healed. The situation this woman was in is absolutely awful. She has been suffering from ongoing menstrual bleeding for 12 years without relief. Now, the condition obviously would be painful, uncomfortable, but it has also caused her to go completely bankrupt. She has spent everything she has on doctors who have only made her worse. But worse again, we're told in the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, again, you might like to note that reference and look it up later, but in Leviticus 15, we are told that when a woman has her period, she becomes ceremonially unclean for a short time. But this woman, her bleeding is continuous, which means she is in a permanent state of being ceremonially unclean. And this has lots of implications. It means that she cannot get married, which has huge implications for the social structures of that day. It means that she cannot touch anybody without making them unclean for the remainder of the day. And it means that she is excluded from the temple. She cannot worship God in the temple. She cannot participate in the offering of sacrifices. She is effectively excluded from the community of God's people and from the worship of God himself. So the situation this woman is facing, it's not simply a medical problem. It's not just about sickness. This is a deeply social and spiritual problem as well. And so in her desperation, she comes into the crowd and pushes her way through coming into contact with lots of different people, making them all unclean as she touches them. And then she reaches out, touches Jesus, which according to the Old Testament law would make Jesus unclean. But instead, the reverse happens. Instead of her uncleanness rubbing off on him, his cleanness rubs off on her and she is completely healed. 
Now, there's a slightly difficult link between the concept of unclean and the concept of sin and what is immoral. So firstly, we need to make it very clear that to be unclean is not a moral thing. It doesn't mean you've done anything sinful. There's all kinds of things that made people unclean in Old Testament law, such like a woman's monthly period, or giving birth, having a rash or a skin disease, or touching a dead body, either of an animal or of a a dead person. Now, none of those things are sinful. None of them are immoral. But all of those things would make you unclean for a time. And when you are unclean, you are excluded from certain places and from certain activities. And so it's more of a hygiene issue in a way. It's a bit like if you are covered in filth, you are not allowed to walk into a king's palace. The guards will stop you at the door and say, no, you are not welcome here. Now, this woman is not able to participate in the worship of God because she was unclean. She needs to be cleansed to participate in the worship of God. Her cleansing is not a moral thing. But it does have a significant link to a cleansing that we all require that is moral. Because of our sin against God, we have become spiritually unclean. We are excluded from God's presence. And so we must be cleansed. And so this non-moral hygiene issue is used really as an illustration, in a way, of what for us is a spiritual condition that is moral. Jesus turns to this woman in the crowd. He finds her and says to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. In the same way that this woman had faith, Uh, had faith in Jesus and was freed from her suffering and made clean. If we will have faith in Jesus, we can be made spiritually clean. To have our sins forgiven and taken away from us. And so if we would have our sins forgiven, if we would be made clean, we then get to join the community of God's people in the kingdom of God. We get to be part of that place where there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering of any kind. And we will get to be in the presence of God forever. So we see here, Jesus has power and authority over both sickness and spiritual uncleanness. He is reversing the fall, and when his kingdom comes, he will bring uncleanness to an end. Well, we come now to our fourth and final miracle, where Jesus raises the dead. This account begins in chapter 5, verse 21, but is then interrupted by the story of the bleeding woman, and then the story picks up again down in verse 35. We meet a man named Jairus. He is a ruler of the synagogue, but just like the woman, he is a man in absolute, desperate, desperate need. He comes to Jesus saying, my daughter is about to die. Please come, lay your hands on her so she will live. So Jesus goes with him, but the whole incident with the bleeding woman means that Jesus is delayed. Now if he had hurried, 
He could have got there on time and prevented her from dying in the first place. But all that mucking around, trying to find the woman in the crowd and then having this conversation with her, it means it's too late. Messengers arrive from Jairus' house saying she has already died. Why bother the teacher any longer? As far as they're concerned, it's all over. Jesus cannot help. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. They continue on to the house. And when they arrive, Jesus does the most extraordinary thing. He raises the girl from the dead. Now, if he had got there earlier and healed her, prevented her from dying, that would have been an astonishing miracle. But to raise somebody from the dead, that is a whole other magnitude of miracle. We're also told... Jesus said to the people who were mourning around the house, the girl is not dead, but asleep. Well, they all knew she was dead. But you see, the difference is dead people don't wake up again. But if you are only asleep, then your state of unconsciousness is only temporary. You will wake up. And so this miracle that Jesus has performed, raising the dead, That's a lot to teach us. It shows us that Jesus has this most incredible power and authority, the kind of power and authority only God has to give life, to raise people from the dead. But we also see the way he conquers death is not by preventing us from dying in the first place. Rather, it's after we have died, he will raise us from the dead. Now, many of you may be accustomed to thinking of life after death as a purely spiritual existence up in heaven, up up there somewhere. The Bible says when Jesus comes back, we will be raised from the dead, physically, bodily, to live in the new world, the new creation that will come about. See, just as Jesus has raised this little girl from the dead, see, when we die, we will only be asleep. Because when Jesus comes back, he will wake us up again. So we see here, Jesus has power and authority over death. He is reversing the fall. And when his kingdom comes, he will bring death to an end. Well, these four miracles we have looked at, I hope you can see now, they're not simply a way of demonstrating raw power. If you use your imagination, you could probably think of even greater demonstrations of power that he could have done. But we see these miracles tell us something very specific about the character of Jesus, the agenda of Jesus, and what the world will look like when the mission of Jesus comes to completion. See, on that last day, when Jesus returns, when his kingdom comes... He will rule and subdue the chaos of nature and bring it to order. He will bring chaos to an end. He will conquer the forces of spiritual evil and bring spiritual evil to an end. He will cleanse us from our sin and bring sin and uncleanness to an end. And he will raise us from the dead and bring even death itself to an end. And so we see in all of these things, Jesus is reversing the fall the kingdom of God has arrived. Please join with me now as we pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that in spite of our sin and rebellion against you, you have stepped into this world, that you are bringing your kingdom into this world. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has come as our King, who has come with power to rescue us from these devastating consequences. Father, please help us to rejoice and to look forward to that day when your kingdom will come and we will be in your presence forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.